0: Let us open Holy Scripture together to the book of Genesis, Genesis 28, and then also the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. We'll start in Genesis 28 in the Pew Bible, page 29. Both passages are alluded to by our Lord Jesus Christ in our text of John Gospel of John chapter 1. He refers to the dream that Jacob had uh, on his journey from the house of his father to the house of his uncle when he was out by himself. We'll read that in Genesis 28, and then turn to Daniel 7. Verse 10 of of Genesis 28 "'Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. "'And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night "'because the sun had set. "'Taking one of the stones of the place, "'he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. "'And he dreamed, and behold, "'there was a ladder set up on the earth, "'and the top of it reached to heaven. "'And behold, the angels of God were ascending, That's as far as we'll go. Let's turn now to the book of Daniel, page 944, Daniel chapter 7, page 944. This too is alluded to by the Lord Jesus Christ in our our text of this morning. We'll read the first 14 verses. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings like of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things." As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold... I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the Pew Bible, page 1128, 1128. Continuing our series of sermons on the opening chapters of this Gospel, we've come as far as verse 35, and we'll look at verses 35 through 51. Verse 35, the next day, again, John, and that's John the baptizer, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's our text for this morning. In response to the preaching, we'll sing about that son, that royal son, from Psalm 72, the stanzas 1, 2, and 10. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you read the opening chapter of this gospel as we've been doing, I think it's fairly easy to see that there's two basic parts to it. The first 18 verses have that unique and glorious revelation of Jesus Christ as the Word who became flesh. John uses imagery that's very high and and holy and is emblazoned on many of our minds. The Word was with God. The Word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, he writes. Jesus is this this divine being, the one who came from God, he says in verse 18, and who shows us the Father. I mean, it's magnificent what he says in those first 18 verses. And once you get to verse 19, the gospel writer seems to switch gears. He brings us down to earth, as it were to John the baptizer, to John's encounter with the Levites and priests sent from headquarters in Jerusalem to investigate this, this man who's baptizing. John bears witness to them. We read that last time, and they don't like what John has to say. So very clearly, once you get to verse 19 and following, we're no longer standing on the clouds of the, verse, the first 18 verses, we're no longer looking into the divine glories of heaven, but rather all of a sudden we're on the very muddy banks of the Jordan River, and we're looking at the hostile clash between men. Heaven seems very far away by the time you get to verse 20. And now in our text of this morning, we don't have a clash so much as we have what looks like the mundane, a rather Ordinary, lowly account of how a few nondescript men become followers of Jesus. I mean, what do we even know about Andrew or Philip or Nathaniel? We're not even sure if this Nathaniel was one of the 12 apostles. We don't hear about him in any of the other gospels. He only reappears toward the end of John's gospel and it's in a very minor capacity. And yet here in John chapter 1, we hear the most out of the lips of Nathaniel, And meanwhile, the rather famous Simon Peter, from him we hear not a word. It's all rather anticlimactic as you get to the end of the passage, don't you think? Between verse 1 of this chapter and verse 51, we seem to have gone from the dizzying heights of divine insight into who Jesus is all the way down to the very plain Jane humdrum ordinariness of Jesus chatting with a no-name disciple. I mean, are we even in the same chapter? Is this the same context? Is there a connection between Jesus being the divine Word of God and Nathanael's conversation with Jesus Well, we hope to see, beloved, that there is. As I bring to you this word of the Lord under this theme, Jesus reveals His identity to fledgling followers. He gives them new eyes to see, and He gives them new gospel to amaze. Our text, verse 35 and following, begins with reference to John the Baptist. The writer records this, the next day again, Jesus was standing with, two, with His two disciples. And John does then what we saw him do in last week's passage. He bears witness to Jesus as the Christ. Verse 36 tells us John looked at Jesus as Jesus was walking by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples of John the Baptist heard this and then they followed after Jesus. So there's a transition here from John in the earlier part of the chapter testifying to those unbelieving Jewish leaders to now John testifying to his own disciples and the reaction is markedly different, isn't it? The priests and the Levites... Who came from Jerusalem, from the Pharisees, they basically give no reaction to John's testimony. John's t- telling them, The Christ is among you. They don't go looking for the Christ. They show no interest in this person that the Baptist identifies as the Lamb of God. In fact, the only thing that contingent from Jerusalem does is very disrespectfully challenge John with more questions. They ply him with questions, and when he answers them, the only thing that we hear from the folks from Jerusalem is crickets, nothing. So on the one hand, you've got the leadership in Jerusalem basically showing a rejection of the testimony of John to the Christ, while on the other hand, some of John's own disciples now, they actually hear the testimony and believe. In fact, they they so much take John at His word that they leave John, their master, and they start to follow Jesus. We're talking to totally opposing responses. Well, this observation is the first connection to those first 18 verses of the chapter. Now, if you would just flip back to verse 6 for a moment, if you have your Bibles handy. Verse 6, John the Baptist and his testimony is very much in the mind of the gospel writer, even as he speaks of the heavenly glories that John is… That, uh, of that, those 18 verses. Because John, he says in verse 6, John the baptizer was sent to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. So, John is announcing to the Jewish people primarily, though Gentiles are not excluded, he's announcing to the Jews that Jesus is the light of the world, but how will they respond? Well, the gospel writer tells us in verse 11, he came, that's the word came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, right there in those opening 18 verses, there is a division marked out within the covenant people of God, within the Jewish people. The bulk of them reject Jesus, but some receive him in faith, and those became, by grace, they became children of God. And this division is what we see playing out in the rest of the chapter from verses 19 to 51. Jewish leaders reject John's testimony, but some of John's disciples embrace it in faith, and they go after the Christ. In fact, chapter 1 as a whole gives us a foretaste of the entire book of John. For the same division we find here in this chapter plays out in the rest of the book If you were to look at from chapters 2 through chapters 12, you don't have to do that right now, but I'm just giving you a bit of a heads up from chapters 2 to chapters 12, we find Jesus shining His light, being the Word who has life in Himself, He shines it to the entire Jewish community, calling them to faith in Himself, but over and over again from chapters 2 to 12, He meets with unbelief. There's the odd believer, but mostly it's unbelief from chapters 2 to 12. Then, from chapters 13 to 17, there's a noticeable switch. Jesus isn't testifying to the whole nation, but He speaks intensely and He speaks privately to His disciples, to those who have actually come to Him and received His testimony and that of John, the baptizer in faith. And He reveals to those disciples the Father, as verse 18 of chapter 1 says. So I just want to clarify for you, not only is chapter 1 a unified whole, but it mirrors and it introduces the whole message of the entire Gospel of John. Well, when we see these reactions, a natural question arises, why? why don't those jewish leaders the priests the levites the pharisees even the sadducees later why do they not accept john's testimony about christ but some of john's own disciples do can't it can't be can it because one group is smarter Because one group has more Bible knowledge and awareness than the other, for if that was the case, the Levites and the priests and the Pharisees would have been first in line. They knew the Bible front, back, forward, up and down. Is it because these men from Galilee are somehow more noble or more righteous or more wise than the leaders in Jerusalem? Well, there's nothing in our text to suggest that. In fact, Nathaniel is rather critical, isn't he, and doubtful of anyone who comes from the town of Nazareth. He says, what good can come from that place? And later in John's gospel, if you find Andrew and Philip back, we find them asking questions of Jesus that only show a great lack of insight. And then there's Peter, who says not a word in this chapter, but we know how Peter makes a number of gaffes and missteps in his discipleship of Jesus. So, among the disciples, there's no particular outstanding qualities that would draw them or that would make them worthy to become followers of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, it really comes down to this. The only reason that these men end up following Jesus is because Jesus gave them eyes to see and that's actually woven in the text kind of subtly all through our text verses 35 to 51 there's a repetition of verbs that have to do with seeing there's the verb to look there's the verb to behold there's the verb to see, then there's the verb to seek, and as its counterpart to find. For example, in verse 36, John the Baptist preaches God's Word to his own disciples as he sees Jesus, and then he announces, behold the Lamb of God, look, here He is. And two of His disciples respond to that preaching, and they start walking after Jesus, and then Verse 38, Jesus turned and He saw them and He says, what are you seeking? They ask where He's staying. Jesus says, come and you will see. That's a very pregnant seeing. It wasn't only that they saw the physical place where Jesus slept that night, but Jesus would show them His true identity. No sooner does Andrew get to to where Jesus was, sometime in the latter part of that evening, He rushes off to find His brother, Simon, and He announces, we have found the Messiah. He had eyes to see. I just want to point out, brothers and sisters, how God is in the driver's seat here in opening people's eyes. First, through the witness of His servant John. that's, That's God sent John to bear witness Then God also sends His Son to give further testimony, and God's Son goes directly to work calling ordinary men and transforming these ordinary people into followers. Oh, yeah, fledgling followers at first, weak, and a lot of misunderstanding, but they were followers and disciples nevertheless. And that ought to encourage us, brothers and sisters, It ought to stimulate us greatly as we set out to obey Christ's command, to spread the gospel, to disciple the nations as we have ability, as we reach out to friends and neighbors to tell them about Jesus. Set your own mind at rest with this truth. It is Jesus who gives people eyes to see. You and I can't do that. It's not our job either. We do the telling. Jesus does the changing of the hearts and the opening of the eyes. And, you know, the telling about Jesus doesn't have to be that complicated. It doesn't have to be that well thought out where we have all the answers. I mean, Andrew didn't have all the answers and Philip didn't have all the answers. But well, they both ran off and told. Naturally, those, they started with those whom they knew who were closest to them. And really, Andrew, Andrew doesn't know a whole lot, does he? He's only been with Jesus a few hours, but as soon as he can, he scurries off to his brother, Simon, and he announces that he has found the Christ. I mean, we can do that with our neighbors, right? Co-workers? This Christ is the Savior of the world. We even know more than what Andrew knew. He's the only one who can overcome death. He's the only one who can fight against and overcome sin. He's the only one who can put a stop to wars on the face of the earth. Think about that. We've got this massive war going on in the Ukraine. We know about World War II and World War I, and there's been wars all the way through every decade. In some part of this world, there's a war going on every decade. Jesus is the only one who can put a stop to those wars. He's the only one who has the power to rid the earth of evil and to renew all creation so that humanity and God can live together in total peace and harmony and joy. That's a message we can get excited about, can't we? That's a message people in our neighborhood, they need, don't they? It's the the good news that many are desperate for. Who doesn't want to know the secret to getting rid of war? So, let's share it. Let's keep it simple. Let's share it. It's in your heart. Share it. And if your neighbor takes an interest then you take your neighbor to Jesus. That's what Andrew does with Peter and Philip, and Philip does that with Nathaniel. After initial interest, they bring their friend, their brother, to Jesus. That's huge, isn't it? Of course, it's true, you and I can't bring anybody to the physical person of the Lord Jesus, but we certainly can bring that individual, to meet Jesus where Jesus is making Himself known. And where does He make Himself known? He makes Himself known here. And He makes Himself known here in church, in the preaching of the Word. Jesus speaks to us. He has commissioned servants like me and others, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and Him as Savior and Lord. So every Sunday, our Lord and God calls us to gather in worship here, and He meets with us here. From this pulpit, Jesus Christ speaks to His people whether it's to newcomer or fledgling follower or lifelong believer, all of us the same. And it is as Christ speaks to us that eyes are opened by His power. And more and more we see and more and more we are amazed at the depths, the new depths of the gospel message. So bring them. If there's an interest, invite him and bring him in. For as Jesus opens the eyes of those new disciples, they begin to get a fuller picture of just who this Jesus is. Based on John the Baptizer's earlier testimony and the first few hours of contact with Jesus, Andrew can already say, We have found the Christ. Now, all Israel was waiting for the Christ, and they knew He was going to be special. He knew He was going to bring salvation, but precisely how special and precisely what kinds of things He would be doing, that was not so clear to the average Israelite. So, Jesus shows them new things about Himself which surprise them and amaze them. The first surprise comes up when Jesus meets Simon. Verse 42, Jesus looked at Simon and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Simon doesn't say a word. No word is recorded here. He just is brought to meet Jesus, and then Jesus speaks. Jesus and Simon had never met to this point, And yet Jesus speaks to Simon with with a firm knowledge of who this man is. And more than that, he speaks with an absolutely out-of-this-world authority by giving Simon a new name. I mean, who gives people new names? You don't just meet a stranger and tell that stranger, look, uh, this is your name now, but here's your new name. That's what you're going to be known by from now on. Nobody does that. Even if we know people for a long period of time, we might use a nickname for them, a term of endearment, but we don't ever make a pronouncement and tell everybody else what to call that individual. That's way beyond our calling and station. That's totally out of place for us. But for Jesus, it's totally in place because He's acting out of an authority that is absolute. He has authority over this Simon. He's got authority over Andrew and over you and over me because He is our King. He is this divine ruler. Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed of the Lord. He is supreme. And He knows not only you by your given name, and all that you and i are by nature but he has the power to change your name he says of simon and he knows simon's character simon wasn't much of a rock was he but he says simon you will be peter rock i'll make you into a rock and you look in the book Acts, and this simon becomes a rock Do you realize, brothers and sisters, that your Savior knows you on that level? Intimately, personally, He knows you by name. And He promises, I'm thinking of Revelation 2, He promises to give all of His faithful followers a new name. He promises to transform you and me into the people He wants us to be. So Andrew and Simon are just hit by that, right? I mean, it's impressed upon them. This man has more knowledge and authority than just on a human level. They don't even quite know how to think of it, but it strikes them. And that's something that Philip and Nathanael soon witness. When Nathanael hears that the Messiah is this Jesus of Nazareth, he offers a rather dismissive and disparaging comment. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, just think, if if you were from Nazareth yourself and you heard that comment, you'd consider that an insult, wouldn't you? Well, this comment, this thinking of Nathanael must have been known to Jesus. For in response to Nathanael's question about how Jesus knows him, Jesus says, Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree If Jesus, from a distance, knew everything about the calling of uh, of Nathanael by Philip, that he was sitting under a fig tree, and if he knew that Nathanael was a man in whom there was no deceit, then he must have also known what Nathanael said. How remarkable then that despite Nathanael's thoughts about Nazareth, Jesus' first words to Nathanael are, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Not only does Jesus not take offense at Nathanael's words, but he reads Nathanael's heart like a book and he describes him for what he is, a man of integrity and truth. Clearly this Jesus has the insight of a prophet and so much more. And it must have blown Nathanael away. Actually it did. And Philip too. Nathanael responds with a confession. Surely... You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. This expands to what Philip and Andrew had already proclaimed, that Jesus was the Christ. Now those terms, Son of God and King of Israel, we know that term Son of God, very familiar with it, but the disciples, they would have known those terms first from the Old Testament For example, from Psalm 2, which we sang last week, but also from Psalm 72, which we will sing in a little while, and even from Psalm 89, which we already did sing, the expression Son of God was applied to the king, the human king on Israel's throne. They were consistently known as Son of God. And that did not mean that they came down from heaven and were of divine origin but it meant that they were of divine appointment. So we're used to that expression, Son of God, and we think of Jesus as Son from eternity, which He is. But the disciples at this stage, they would have been thinking in the line of Psalm 89 as we sang it, where God says, I also will appoint Him as My firstborn Son, highest of earthly kings, in fame surpassed by none. Later they will get to the divine sonship of Jesus, but here it's just the royal sonship. So the disciples then were already thinking of Jesus in these very grand terms, and then Jesus Jesus drops a bombshell on them that would have left their jaws on the floor. Verse 50, "'Because I said to you, "'I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe?' you will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This the disciples could not have expected. There was no preparation for that, and it must have left them stunned They would grasp the allusions. Jesus first takes them back to a very special experience of Father Jacob, patriarch of the nation, as we read about that in Genesis 28. Perhaps you're familiar with that story. We couldn't read the whole encounter, but Jacob had just betrayed his brother and had to trick his poor father And he was sent out of the family home to go seek a wife far away. So Jacob is by himself. He's alone on this long journey. He's poor. He's far from home. His brother wants to kill him. Things are looking rather bleak for Jacob. Then on this journey, one night, God gives Jacob a special dream. And the first thing Jacob sees in this vision is a ladder, perhaps better, you can read that in the footnote, better understood as a staircase set up from earth to heaven, its top reached into heaven, God's dwelling place. That stairway to heaven is critical, and Jacob understands there is a connection between where I live and where God lives. And in the next instant, Jacob sees angels. He sees them first going up the staircase and then coming down the staircase. That means the angels are going up. They've already been down on the earth. Now they're going up, and they're going up to report to the being that stands at the top of the staircase, the Lord God. And the angels coming down mean they've received instructions from the Lord to continue doing their work on the earth. There is this continuous stream of angels going up and down between where Jacob lives and where God lives. A connection. Traffic. And what is it that angels do on the earth but to help the people of God and to move God's plan forward? Jacob, who was walking this road alone and felt all alone in the world, suddenly realized he is surrounded by God's ministering servants, the angels, and that God Himself is watching over him to fulfill all of His promises. What an awe-inspiring vision that Father Jacob received What powerful assurance and comfort for Him. But Jesus says to these these nondescript disciples, these very fresh believers, you, you're going to see even greater things than Father. Jacob saw. You will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and and descending, going back and forth to heaven on the stairway that is known as the Son of Man. The staircase, the ladder, that link to heaven is actually, says Jesus, it's actually me. I'm the link. And you'll get to see that, disciples, through the course of my ministry. You will see. Your eyes will see. Jesus gives Himself a name here that no one yet has called Him in this chapter. And you might recall from last week, we started to tally up the many names that are given to Jesus just in chapter 1. I mean, there's a whole list. You can find them for yourself We have a few of them in our text, King of Israel, Son of God, Christ, Messiah. But then Jesus says, Son of Man. Nobody called him that yet, but he calls himself that. In fact, all throughout John's gospel and the other gospels, most often when Jesus refers to himself, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And you know, hardly anybody else does that, referring to him as Son of Man. It's his favorite title for himself, description. What's the significance? Well, in the Old Testament, you can find this phrase, son of man. For example, given by God to the prophet Ezekiel. It's all throughout Ezekiel's prophecy, and there it seems to emphasize Ezekiel's humanity, his weakness. He's a son of man. He's a mere son of man. But this expression, Son of Man, was, was never known generally to be a name for the Messiah. The only time it comes up as a name for a special figure is in Daniel 7, which we read. And he is a mysterious individual in that vision. You might want to turn there for a moment, if you've still got your Bibles handy, to Daniel 7. It's described, he's described there as one who is like a son of man. Page 944. He's described as one like a son of man. That's in verse 13. And he is said to come with the clouds of heaven. He comes to the figure known as the Ancient of Days. Now, the Ancient of Days is clearly the Lord, is Yahweh, God. He comes, this figure comes, and He he approaches Yahweh, and then we read verse 14, He is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So this title, Son of Man, it's kind of a paradox, you see. On the face of it, it seems to stress lowliness and weakness and the unimportance of of being a human being. But in reality, Son of Man is a glorious and mighty King of kings and Lord of lords who rules an eternal kingdom. This is an eternal figure. So he's no ordinary son of man like Ezekiel. He's a glorious son of man somehow. It's a mystery. Jesus makes all of this rather clear at his trial before the Sanhedrin. At the end of Matthew's gospel, I tell you, he says to the Jews, the Jewish leaders, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He alludes even more forcefully to Daniel 7. Now back to these words of our text, verse 51. In this one sentence, speaking to Nathanael, Jesus packs a whole world of theology that it will take years for these fledgling followers to fully comprehend. But can we see more than they could see, beloved? Can we see something and, and feel something of the astounding, amazing picture? Jesus is this incredible Son of Man. On the one hand, a weak human, but at the same time, an invincible being beyond human, God. Who else but God can live and reign forever? And His cross, the cross of Jesus, is in fact the stairway to heaven. Jesus' death and resurrection opens up heaven to us earthlings, Because by His death and resurrection, the barrier of our sin is removed to all who acknowledge Jesus to be Messiah, Christ, King of Israel, Son of God, Son of man. We can go up that ladder ourselves with the angels into the presence of God. Think about this amazing good news for you. Personally, for your family, for the church, for the whole world, because of Jesus' saving work, angels attend to your needs and mine. They're still going up and down between heaven and earth. They still regularly report to our Father in heaven. Actually, they report to the Son of Man at His right hand who then sends those angels back to earth again with renewed instructions to minister to us this way and care for us that way. All peoples, all nations, all powers and dominions and languages are beneath the hand, the royal ruling hand of this Jesus. That's President Putin and the Russian army. It's Prime Minister Trudeau and his cabinet It's President Biden and the United States of America all answer to Christ. They all do, whether they acknowledge it or not. All answer to the Christ whom you and I serve. The Christ whom you love. The Christ who loves you and me with an everlasting love. He is above them all. That is news to rejoice in, isn't it? That's amazing news that we can share with others, can't we? Of course we can. And may the Son of Man open many eyes as we do so. Amen.